this morning we'll be working through Psalm 14, and as are many of the, the Psalms, this is the Psalm of David. Now, there's, there's a mixed opinion on this particular Psalm, and just what kind of Psalm it is. Is, is it a lament? Is it prophetic liturgy? Some think it's a psalm of instruction. It has it clearly been influenced by Israel's wisdom tradition. This psalm is, is really a psalm of trust. It clearly illustrates where each of us is without God and where we will be through faith in God because of God. While it is a fairly bitter pill to swallow... The truths of this psalm are also a great comfort to all of mankind as this psalm makes clear the brokenness, the need of man, and the power and desire of God to save. Let's read Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. That ends the reading. Let's, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We give all this to you, praying this in your name. Amen. What is a fool? What, what comes to mind when we hear the word fool? Typically, like, fool, for us, it doesn't really have a strong Connotation. The, the dictionary definition is a person who acts unwisely or imprudently, a silly person. And that, I mean, that tends to be what we think of when we think of a fool, a person who isn't smart or, or at least does something that isn't smart, right? It, it was foolish of me to get more hot sauce in this halal guy's platter than I can handle, or, or like it was foolish of me to take the shortcut down the muddy road trying to save time, but now the car's stuck and we're going to be like super late. There's so many times in a given week and like in everyday life that I sit there and say to myself, way to go, Stenberg. You know, you, you didn't quite think this one through, did you? It just, it just didn't quite take it as, as far as it, it should have been. Doing something that, that isn't smart. Another understanding of a fool is a person who is silly or, or who does things that are ridiculous. You know, back in, in medieval times, they'd dress these, these dudes up with the crazy hats and the bells, and they were supposed to just act absolutely ridiculous, trying to entertain the king and his court, entertain their, their leader and, and, and the court. They just do like stupid, silly things for entertainment. Or, or like the, the, 
you know, sometimes we, we do things deliberately to, to hurt themselves or for the sake of humor, like the Three Stooges, right? Like that's, that's silly, kind of foolish humor. Or, or then there's, there's Johnny Knoxville and, and his crew of crazies, right? The ridiculous things that those guys do for the sake of humor. I mean, even our children, like their humor tends to start with, with silly and foolish things. Being just silly, you know, like stubbing toes, running into walls. That stuff gets my kids dying. They love it. And it's just this like silly, not clever, not particularly funny, but it's just this, this silly humor. Often, that's the context of how we understand foolishness in our culture today. Silly or just like things we didn't think through, mistakes that we make without really totally analyzing the entire situation. But they understood it a lot differently in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, where our passage is from this morning. You know, they, we have a very low opinion of foolishness. It's just kind of, it's whatever. You know, you're, you're being foolish. It's, it's just, it doesn't really matter that much to us if, if, if you're being a fool or acting like a fool. It's, it's something fairly easy to overcome or easily written off or easily forgiven. But our passage today gets serious about foolishness real fast. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. We're not talking about Larry, Curly, and Moe or Johnny Knoxville, Bam Margera, Stevo, or the silly antics of our children's anymore. Are we? This isn't some innocent, silly fun. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So what fool is David talking about? Who is the fool? Well, if the fool is the one who says that there is no God, I mean, it must be the unbeliever, right? David must be talking about anyone who does not believe in God. He must be talking about atheists. And, and yes, he's, he's writing about atheists. And if we stopped, and if he had stopped writing, you know, the psalm right here, and we could limit his thoughts, you know, if, if this, is, this is all he wrote, then we could, you know, you could make an argument and limit the, the rest of his thought to atheists. But he doesn't stop there. We can't limit what he says just to, to non-believers because he keeps writing. In verse 2 to 3, it says, The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Who is the fool? In this passage, we are all the fool. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. We see the Apostle Paul echo this thought in the famous passage in Romans 3, 23, where we read, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Rolf Jacobson writes, about Psalm 14, he writes this, he says, This psalm points its accusing finger, finger not only at non-believers, those who don't believe in God, in Jesus and his work on the cross, but also at every believer whose daily life is shaped by anything less than total conformity to God's will. Than total conformity 
to God's will. How does it, how does it feel to hear that? How does it feel to know that God demands total conformity from every moment of consciousness, from we wake up until we go to bed, our entire lives, our thoughts and our actions are to be sinless and blameless. They're to be totally conformed to God's will, to God's desires for us, to what God has demanded of us. And if we can't do that, if we can't live that way, if we can't be sinless and blameless, then, then we are the fool. We are the fool that David writes about in the psalm, the one who lives as if there is no God, who is corrupt, who is vile, who does not do good. We are the fool. How does it feel to hear that? How does it feel to know that, to recognize that truth? You know, after we get past our initial rejection and anger at being labeled the fool in the passage, after we get past the outrage and insult and realize and dejectedly accept the reality that this is truth, that we are, each one of us, the fool, how do we feel? How do we feel? There are a lot of emotions that run through our hearts and minds as we accept the truth of our sinfulness, the truth about our sinful hearts. I know I feel anger. Anger, frustration, fear, guilt, shame. And all of it leads me down this path to helplessness. I feel totally helpless. As I recognize that I do not have the ability to live and act perfectly as God demands that I do, I feel helpless. Helpless because I can't do anything about it. For as Psalm 14 is so clearly pointed out, I am depraved. Depravity is is the sinful nature we have inherited from Adam. It is our natural state. When he ate the fruit, he knew he wasn't supposed to eat. In the Garden of Eden, he sinned. And that sin, that depravity, is now the natural state of mankind. It is handed down to each one of us, and we are totally subjected to it. Slaves to it. And my total depravity makes me hostile to God. Romans 8-7 says this about the depraved, the the sinful mind. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The sinful mind, the depraved mind, it cannot, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Our depraved minds, our minds on their own and in their natural state, cannot believe in God. So what does God do? Here is this creation that he loves so much that he created to spend time with, to enjoy, to have a relationship with. And it's fallen away. It it isn't even capable of believing in him on its own. So what what does God do? He intervenes. Out of his love, he intervenes. God sends someone who does believe in him in order to save us. God sends himself. God sends himself. He sends us Jesus. He sends us 
a savior. And and in our depravity, in our natural state, wallowing like pigs in our own muck, our own dirt, our own filth, how do we respond to this savior? He isn't what we expected. And he definitely isn't what we wanted. So we yelled, crucify him. And had our Savior nailed to a tree, and as he hung there, Jesus, the one who was not vile, the one who did good deeds, the one who was sinless and pure, the one who was not corrupt, he became corruption for us. He became the corruption of the world in order to save it. In order to save it. Walter Wanger Jr. writes a story called The Ragman. I'm going to read that story for you this morning. Walter writes, I saw a strange sight. I stumbled upon a story most strange like nothing in my life. My street sense, my sly tongue had ever prepared me for. Hush, listen, listen, and I will tell it to you. Even before dawn, one Friday morning, I noticed a young man, handsome and strong, walking the alleys of our city. He was pulling an old cart filled with clothes, both bright and new, and he was calling in a clear, tenor voice, Rags! Rags! Ah, the air was foul, and the first light filthy to be crossed by such sweet music. Rags! New rags for old! I take your tired rags, rags. Now this is a wonder, I thought to myself. For the man stood six feet four and his arms were like tree limbs, hard and muscular and his eyes flashed intelligence. Could he find no better job than this, to be a ragman in the inner city? I followed him, my my curiosity drove me and I wasn't disappointed. Soon the ragman saw a woman sitting on her back porch. She was sobbing into a handkerchief, sighing and shedding a thousand tears. Her knees and elbows made a sad X. Her shoulders shook. Her heart was breaking. The ragman stopped his cart, and quietly he walked to the woman, stepping round tin cans, dead toys, and pampers. Give me your rag, he said gently, and I'll give you another. He slipped the handkerchief from her eyes, and she looked up, and he laid across her palm a linen cloth so clean and new that it shined. She blinked from the gift to the giver. Then, as he began to pull his cart, the ragman did a strange thing. He put her stained handkerchief to his own face, and then he began to weep, to sob so grievously as she had done. His shoulders shaking, yet she was left without a tear. This is a wonder, I breathed to myself, and I followed the sobbing ragman like a child who cannot turn away from mystery. Rags! Rags, new rags for old. In a little while, the sky shone gray behind the rooftops, and I could see the shredded curtains hanging out black windows. The ragman came upon a girl whose head was wrapped in a bandage, whose eyes were empty. Blood soaked her bandage, a single line of blood ran down her cheek. 
Now the tall ragman looked upon this child with pity, and he drew a lovely yellow bonnet from his cart. Give me your rag, he said, tracing his own line on her cheek, and I'll give you mine. The child could only gaze at him while he loosened the bandage, removed it, and tied it to his own head. The bonnet he set on hers, and I gasped at what I saw, for with the bandage went the wound. Against his brow it ran a darker, more substantial blood, his own. Rags, rags, I take old rags, cried the sobbing, bleeding, strong, intelligent ragman. The sun hurt both the sky now and my eyes. The ragman seemed more and more to hurry. Are you going to work? He asked a man who leaned against the telephone pole. The man shook his head and the ragman pressed him. Do you have a job? Are you crazy? Sneered the other. He pulled away from the pole, revealing the right sleeve of his jacket flat. The cuff stuffed into the pocket. He had no arm. So said the ragman. Give me your jacket and I'll give you mine. So much quiet authority in his voice. The one-armed man took off his jacket and so did the ragman and I trembled at what I saw for the ragman's arm stayed in its sleeve. And when the other put it on, he had two good arms thick as tree limbs. But the ragman had only one. Go to work, he said. After that, he found a drunk lying unconscious beneath an army blanket, an old man, hunched, wizened, and sick. He took that blanket and wrapped it around himself, but for the drunk, he left new clothes. And now I had to run to keep up with the ragman, though he was weeping uncontrollably and bleeding freely at the forehead, pulling his card with one arm and stumbling for drunkenness, falling again and again, exhausted, old, Old and sick, yet he went with terrible speed. On spider's legs, he skittered through the alleys of the city, this mile and the next until he came to its limits, and then he rushed beyond. I went, I wept to see the change in this man. I hurt to see his sorrow, and yet I needed to see where he was going in such such haste. Perhaps to know what drove him so. The little old ragman, he came to a landfill. He came to the garbage pits. And I wanted to help him in what he did, but I hung back, hiding. He climbed a hill. With tormented labor, he cleared a little space on that hill. Then he sighed. He lay down. He pillowed his head on a handkerchief and a jacket. He covered his bones with an army blanket, and he died. Oh, how I cried to witness that death. I slumped in a junked car and wailed and mourned as one who has no hope, because I had come to love the ragman. Every other face had faded in the wonder of this man, and I cherished him, but he died. And I sobbed myself to sleep. I did not know, how, how could I know, that I slept through Friday night and Saturday, and it's night too. But then on Sunday morning, I was wakened by a violence. Light, pure, hard, demanding light slammed against my sour face, and I blinked, 
And I looked and I saw the first wonder of all. There was the ragman, folding the blanket most carefully, a scar on his forehead, but alive. And besides that, healthy. There was no sign of sorrow or age. And all the rags that he had gathered shined for cleanliness. Then his eyes fell on me, quivering among the piles of trash. And he called out to me, beckoning me over to him. While I lowered my head and trembling for all that I had seen, I myself walked up to the ragman. I told him my name with shame, for I was a sorry figure next to him. And he asked in a voice tender and strong, Let me have your rags. Let me dress you. Then I took off all my clothes in that place, and I stood, and I said to him, with my dear yearning in my voice, Dress me. He dressed me. My Lord put new rags on me, and I am a wonder beside him, the ragman, the ragman, the Christ. Jesus died to redeem a world of unbelieving fools. And through the preaching of this message, this message of the gospel, he overcomes our foolish hearts. He takes our old filthy rags and he dresses us in clean rags. And those clean rags overcome the filth, the guilt, the shame, the sin, and all of the nasty, embarrassing things that stand between us and our relationship with God. Jesus overcomes our foolishness. And though I can admit that my foolish self, my sinful nature still denies God, still fights against Him and my need for Him, His love fights back and his love is stronger and his love overcomes for as our passage today says when the Lord restores his people let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad when the Lord restores his people the Lord restores us And we can be glad in that. He overcomes our foolish hearts with his love and his mercy. His blood, his rags cover over us. And because of Jesus, we are forgiven. We are forgiven our foolishness, our self-centeredness, our hypocrisy, our idol worship, our corruption, our hate, all of it. We are forgiven all of it. We are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. What a gift. What a refuge. What a Savior. Amen.